The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. You know, we said earlier, 71% of Americans are concerned about democracy. And apparently that number, roughly 71%, it holds for both parties. So if listeners are concerned about democracy, they can expect that there's someone from the other party who's also concerned about democracy from a different perspective. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. Over the past few years, books, podcasts, and articles have all warned about democratic decline and even breakdown. For some, those fears were manifested when Donald Trump refused to concede the 2020 presidential election and rioters stormed the Capitol on January 6th. Now, in the upcoming midterm elections, many Democrats, including President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris, warn about looming threats to American democracy. But Jason Brownlee disagrees with this widespread pessimism about democracy's prospects. He recently wrote an article with Kenny Mao called Why Democracies Survive that sparked responses from a number of prominent scholars, including Yasha Monk, Tom Ginsburg, and Nancy Bermeo. You can read their responses alongside the original article and their rebuttal in the latest Journal of Democracy. Jason Brownlee is a professor of government at the University of Texas, Austin. Our conversation explores democratic resilience in the world and in the United States. It's an important message as Americans go to the polls because too much fear may leave some despondent and desperate. You see, democracy depends on hope. It's what allows us to move past a disappointing election outcome. There's always another opportunity just a few years away. Desperation, on the other hand, causes people to turn away from democracy and seize power through undemocratic means. For example, in Venezuela and Turkey, the political opposition tried to overthrow political leaders who threatened democracy. Both coups failed. Moreover, their actions, ironically, led to the democratic breakdowns they feared. So, let's make sure to hold on to hope even when elections do not go our way. Now, for those enjoying this podcast, I want to recommend another show. It's called Entitled. It's hosted by law professors Claudia Flores and Tom Ginsburg. By the way, that's the same Tom Ginsburg who wrote a response to today's guest, Jason Brownlee in the Journal of Democracy. Tom was also a past guest on this show a few months ago. The podcast entitled Focuses on Human Rights. It's about why rights matter and 
What's the Matter with Rights? It's a fascinating show that's incredibly well produced. So definitely check it out. But for now, here is my conversation with Jason Brownlee. Jason Brownlee, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, Jason, was really impressed with the two papers, really, that you submitted to Journal of Democracy, Why Democracies Survive in a Quiet Consensus. And the first one sparked quite a bit of debate, I mean, quite a bit of response from some very profound scholars like Yasha Monk, Tom Ginsburg, Nancy Bermeo, and others. It's a fascinating article that I think at its core, one of the big themes was really about democratic resilience. And you bring up a fascinating point in the paper where you write, the 2010s began with 116 electoral democracies in the world, according to Freedom House, and ended with 115. It's a statistic that took me by surprise and kind of runs against the grain of what many of us kind of assume when we're reading a lot of these reports on democracy. So I'd like to start by asking, is the democratic recession, is that something that's a real phenomenon? Well, I think if people are looking at the qualitative shifts within procedural democracies, they can find evidence of a coarsening or degradation and institutional quality in democracies, although I think even that has been going on for a while. In terms of the number of cases that are still meeting the threshold or meeting the standard for procedural democracy, we are not seeing a recession. We are not seeing a democratic recession in that respect. And we are not seeing a reverse wave in Huntington's formulation. Back in 1999, when Pakistan had a coup, Larry Diamond had an essay asking, is this the start of a third reverse wave? I think looking back, it was not. But as you say, with those statistics in any given decade, there is volatility, there is some fluctuation, in part because people, including Freedom House, may be a little precipitous or a little too eager to call a country democratic. I mean, there were a couple of years around 2013, 2014, where Freedom House was coding Libya as an electoral democracy. So, you know, if you're coding that sort of country, that kind of political situation as a democracy, then the number is not going to be sort of solid and robust and as constant as if you were really just focusing on countries that had at least you know, three or five years under their belt where things had settled out a little bit. You're going to get some false positives, in other words. But I don't see evidence for a democratic recession. And related to that, I do not see any evidence for an autocratic wave, a resurgence of authoritarianism in the sense of more governments like Vladimir Putin's or Xi Jinping's or uh, Abdel Fattah Sisi's in Egypt. And something that we say in a quiet consensus is that we need to be careful, more careful than scholars have often been in the literature, about differentiating sort of democracy in substantive terms from authoritarianism in substantive terms. Some data sets I think the variety of democracy, electoral democracy indicators is a prime example, basically have the two kind of conjoined or linked in which if you stop being a democracy, you become an autocracy. So they have a four category typology of liberal democracy, electoral democracy, electoral autocracy, and then something like closed autocracy. 
And so if you stop being an electoral democracy and you just drop one tier, you've become an electoral autocracy. I think conceptually that doesn't hold up. We know that there are countries that may no longer be electoral democracies, but there's definitely not kind of an autocrat in power in any serious way. You know, look at Haiti right now. Look at, I mean, I think to a great extent, Iraq. I mean, countries that have substantial pluralism, maybe often kind of violent expressions of pluralism and political instability. These don't belong really in either category. But if you're counting them as autocracies, if you count a place like Haiti or count a place like Iraq as an autocracy, then again, you're going to have false positives in terms of autocracies. And you're going to see an autocratic wave where substantively the evidence doesn't support it. One of the problems with VDEM's approach that you kind of just highlighted is it oftentimes describes some countries as autocracies that are highly debatable. A great example of that is India. They've described that as an electoral autocracy. Pretty confident that your model describes it still as an electoral democracy. I'm pretty confident Freedom House still describes it as an electoral democracy as well. What do you see as the line, really, between democracy and dictatorship? And what is it that would fall in between the two? Yes, it's a great question. And I have a paper that I'm developing with Ashley Anderson from UNC Chapel Hill and Killian Clark from Georgetown School of Foreign Service, where we're trying to look at this middle space systematically, not as just a general zone of hybrid regimes, but really substantively in terms of what it means. But let's start with what's on either end. I mean, in terms of substantive democracy, we have a pretty good definition of that from Schumpeter and Dahl. In terms of substantive autocracy, I think what people have meant in the modern era is something like what Juan Lenz wrote about. There is maybe some amount of pluralism, but it's very constrained. And in general, there is a single faction that's in charge, either a single faction or a single individual. That's the operating premise of the current literature on authoritarianism from leading scholars like Barbara Geddes and Milan Zvolik, Joe Wright, Erica France and others, Jennifer Gandhi, one could go on. There's a lot of people writing about authoritarianism. And when you look at what authoritarianism means to them, these authoritarian regimes are characterized by two fundamental political problems. The first is elite factionalism, because there's no kind of higher sovereign who will arbitrate among them when they have disputes. And the second is control of the populace, because there's no meaningful, reliable mechanism for translating public preferences into government policy, state policy. And so if those are the cases that we're interested in, and I think they are, I think those are the cases, the kinds of situations that undergrads want to read and learn about when they take a course on dictatorship or a course on comparative authoritarianism, then we're basically talking about single factional rule. And so if one wants to separate the real autocracies out from the rest and think about where that line is crossed to get back to your question, then look at where single factional rule has been established in India, in Hungary both of which are still considered, as of the most recent Freedom House report, electoral democracies, we do not have single factional rule in the sense of a self-perpetuating single-party regime. They're dominant parties, and they definitely work to manipulate political conditions in their favor. It's not always a, a level playing field for the opposition. They may also violate and infringe upon civil liberties. I mean, Modi in India 
has basically been working to sort of bump Muslims in India down to kind of second-class citizens. But these are not single-factional regimes, and I would not call them autocracies. There remains a very serious prospect in the future that based on economic cycles, business cycles, or just the political winds changing, that the opposition will have another opportunity to peacefully come to power and will replace the BJP and the Fidesz governments through elections. And that's quite different than the situation in Russia, where I don't think anyone reasonably expects Putin to lose an election, or in Egypt, as another example. So that's where I would draw the line. And I think it's confusing to start calling India an electoral autocracy when it's really a procedural democracy with substantial problems in terms of civil liberties uh, infringements. Well, even a lot of its harshest critics, like Ashutosh Varshney, still says that India is going to continue to have competitive elections. It's still democratic in that sense. What about competitive authoritarianism? It's a popular term. It gets thrown around a lot. Would you say that those are effectively democracies because they're still prospect for electoral change? I think of competitive authoritarianism as a situation more than a regime type. It generally tends to be a situation where one party is enjoying a temporary political advantage over its opponents. And so it has a resemblance to dominant party regimes, but without the stability that Pimpel and others observed in what they called uncommon democracies. Then sometimes, I guess Russia would be a case, Bangladesh right now under Sheikh Hasina, Wajid would be another. You can have that dominance tip in the other direction where it really becomes a kind of lasting hegemony and you end up with authoritarianism. So I kind of think of competitive authoritarianism mostly as electoral democracies with imperfect but still quite vigorous competition. And really, I mean, the tell there is in the adjective competitive. Substantively, I've already said that I think of authoritarianism as single factional rule. If there's real competition going on where the opposition can regularly get like over 30% of the vote, then I don't think it is authoritarian any longer. So one of the big claims within the paper was that wealthy democracies rarely collapse into dictatorship, autocracy, or authoritarianism, however you want to describe it. Why don't you explain a little bit about why wealthy democracies rarely have full-blown democratic breakdowns? So this is a pattern that's been observed for decades. It was first reported by Seymour Martin Lipset, and then later validated with some robust statistics by Adam Jaworski and his collaborators in the 1990s and in their 2000 book. The question of why wealth sustains democracy is one that leads to a number of different answers. But what we've seen across the world is that the processes that bring about high levels of productive industrial wealth meaning not just oil rents, you don't just stick a drill in the ground and then your country's wealthy the next day, but you've developed industry, you've developed a capable workforce, there's investment going on. These processes tend to undergird political parties that have substantial societal backing and that represent different interests in society and that are then positioned to viably compete with each other in elections. And so the wealth of a country like the United States or 
Great Britain or Japan, this wealth is strongly correlated with a number of other factors in this longer process of economic and social development that help to sustain democracy. One thing that's important to note here, the relationship is about sustaining democracy. It's not about generating democracy. Singapore is the classic outlier here, if the case was the other way around. Countries that are authoritarian and are already wealthy can maintain that authoritarianism. But if they manage to become democracies, if they start having multi-party competition, that's likely to continue. One of the thoughts in the back of my head, whenever I think about this theory, is that I wonder whether we really have enough data to know that this is actually true yet. Because when Lipset did his analysis back in 1959, I think he went back 40 some odd years And that's quite a bit of cases, but at the same time, we're still looking at maybe like one, depending on how you define democracy, maybe two centuries worth. I mean, it's always possible that as we go through different historical conditions, as things change, as we see different scenarios, that maybe there's experiences and outcomes and outliers and things that we just don't understand. Do you think that there's really enough data yet to say that this is something that's as close as we can come to a political law? I think that in the face of substantial concern about OECD states losing their democracies, that we have the data to say how severe that threat is. There is the outlier in our article of Turkey, a country that I would say at this point is authoritarian. Some could argue that it's still somewhere in the lower bounds of electoral democracy, but we treat it as a case of democratic breakdown. That's above the historic line where democracy appeared to be self-reinforcing. Turkey, which is a member of the OECD, basically by 2016 or so, was a dominant party regime led by Erdogan as a strongman. So it's not a deterministic relationship, but I think the data are quite strong. And what you pointed out in terms of data limitations, you know, a century, two centuries, That would hold for most social science claims. So yes, I mean, eventually the way the world operates may change. The causal relationship may change. Things may be different or maybe procedural democracy will be self-sustaining, but that'll be moot because people care about other things like the carbon footprint of countries or some other issue. And so I would remain pretty confident in this relationship, especially again, with respect to the ongoing debate about how much democracy is in crisis in the United States, in the European Union, and in peer countries. Well, I'm definitely very interested in the idea of democracy in crisis, particularly in the United States right now, because we have the midterm election coming up. And that's become one of the themes. President Biden's spoken about it. It's become one of the big concerns of many voters, typically who lean left, who support Democrats, but still a concern of many voters. In the paper, you tend to warn against overvigilance. I'm curious as to whether or not it's possible that overvigilance is kind of baked into the model that democracies that are wealthy don't break down. I mean, is it possible that it's necessary to have some people who are overly vigilant in order for wealthy democracies not to break down. Well, that's the argument that Tom Ginsburg puts forward in his reply to us, this idea that a little bit of tyrannophobia is a good thing so that people will remain on their toes. And our response is, well, 
let's be careful not to reply to kind of hyperbole with more hyperbole. Let's fight fire with water, not with more fire. I think one has to consider what the trade-offs are, what the opportunity costs are. When we're making these diagnoses of kind of what the contemporary problems are in the United States and peer countries, if the problem is that we're in a Weimar kind of situation on the brink of dictatorship, that invites certain policy implications. If instead we are in the midst of an ongoing procedural democracy that's not going to break down, but has some tough economic problems that have left voters alienated and aggrieved, then that calls for a different set of remedies. And you know what you've pointed out about the concern that voters have regarding the state of democracy is borne out by the polling data, but the data are interesting. So if we take the New York Times-Siena poll from early October, I think something like 71% of the registered voters that they polled said that they thought democracy was under threat in the United States. But when they were asked, what is the most important issue facing the United States? The number that said saving democracy was in the single digits. By contrast, some 43% pointed to economic issues, inflation, jobs, and unemployment, those types of concerns. And so I get a little bit concerned when Biden or former President Obama, and then those who are kind of taking their cues from them, the Democratic Party, focus on the saving democracy issue instead of the economic bread and butter issues. I guess I've said in the article, I don't think theoretically and empirically that it holds up very well. And then as a political strategy, I don't think it's been really moving the needle in Democrats' favor either. So I think there's a lot of reasons to continue to be vigilant. But I mean, we've had plenty of articles about democracy being in crisis. I mean, we get like one every four weeks from the New York Times, typically citing VDEM data, by the way, which we've already problematized earlier in this interview. So I think it's time for a little bit of a correction in the other direction to listen to what voters are saying and think about why it appears, you know, in a couple of weeks from now, in early November, that they're going to give Democrats such a shellacking after what, in many respects, could be looked at as a pretty decent year of performance for Biden, given the structural constraints that he's been under. Now, one of the concerns that many people have is not about Democratic breakdown, but when they say that they're concerned about the health of democracy, whether it's in the United States or other countries, is really more about Democratic backsliding. And many assume that the backsliding could lead to breakdown. But one of the insights in the paper that you wrote that just caught me completely by surprise here, I'll just read the quote. You write, stretching from just after the Second World War to the beginning of our current century, cases of democratic breakdown without democratic backsliding also outnumbered the handful of cases of breakdown and backsliding by nine to one. It just blew my mind that most of the time, in fact, the vast majority of times, Democratic backsliding does not lead to breakdown. And not only that, but oftentimes democratic breakdown doesn't involve any backsliding. Why is there so little connection between the two? Right. So the way to think about democratic backsliding that we recommend is political cycles in which institutions or institutional performance may decline and then recover. And so you can think of that like a sine wave kind of going up and down over a period of years. Now, if you're in the trough, it could definitely feel like 
things are headed in a bad direction. But just like with economic business cycles, there's likely uh, recovery just around the corner. And we don't gainsay that or minimize the damage that could be done during such a period. But we do think that those ups and downs with respect to institutional decline and recovery are, as you're pointing out with the data, distinct from the question of democratic breakdown, where generally speaking, you're either going to have a military junta take power or a civilian executive engage in some type of uh, slow motion or rapid autogolpe, self-coup. So yeah, in that respect, they are different. They've been linked in our minds that we have this association like, oh, backsliding, things are getting worse. If they just keep getting worse, then we'll go off the edge and we'll end up in autocracy. But when you look around at the cases, zoom out from the contemporary period, we see that no, actually recovery is much more likely than breakdown. That's the the modal path for backsliding. You mentioned Turkey earlier. I want to come back to it because it's a clear exception in your model. In fact, I think the number that you gave for the line that kind of allows democracies to kind of consolidate just because of just pure economic conditions is like around 15 to 17,000 purchasing power parity. And Turkey was at about 27,000. So it was significantly above the line. And when you graphed it out, it was a clear outlier. Why did Turkey collapse? What brought it about, even though it was a wealthy democracy at the time? Well, in a way, Turkey is the case that people are treating as typical, as evidence of a trend. And if the one thing our article can do is to show people, like, Turkey is Turkey. The evidence for this catching on and other countries replicating it, either through the intentional acts of the incumbents or through some other processes, is not there. We just don't see other countries so far going in the way that Turkey did. You know, why did it happen in Turkey in particular? I would encourage listeners to look for great work that's done by specialists in the country. My own kind of more casual observations would be that Erdogan, unlike other leaders who were really kind of pushing the red lines of the Turkish system, managed to avoid a coup and really undermine the power of the military. And then beyond that was then able to consolidate power really around himself with the help of his party. He may have been helped in the 2010s. He may have substantially been helped by the regional instability that was brought about after the Arab uprisings and the outbreak of the Syrian civil war. So there is a kind of exogenous international element there that allowed him at some points when he was facing close elections to play up a nationalist element, an anti-Kurdish element. And I think that may have been one of the contributing factors. But if we think about these variables that I'm listing off, a combination of luck or political savvy to outmaneuver the military, regional environment that was conducive to authoritarianism, these basically allowed him to buck the trend to break away from the pack of other wealthy democracies and consolidate his own rule. One of the things that stands out to me about Turkey was the fact that the opposition used undemocratic means to try to preserve democracy through trying to stage a coup against Erdogan, because that really feels like that was the turning point from being something that was just an unhealthy situation or severe democratic backsliding into an outright democratic breakdown eventually. 
Another example that comes to mind that was very similar is in Venezuela, where the opposition again tried to stage a coup against Hugo Chavez that was unsuccessful. I was surprised Venezuela wasn't on your list of countries that were above the threshold because you have it listed as a breakdown in 2008. And according to the World Bank, the income that year was about 17740 I would have thought it'd be above the threshold. Are you discounting it because it was heavily oil dependent? Yeah, it gets dropped from our graph on 137 because of oil wealth. I think also, if we're going by the data set we use for breakdown cases, Russia is removed as well for a similar reason. So yeah, that's why Venezuela doesn't feature because oil wealth has different properties. Now, it is reasonable to include it when we're talking about breakdown and backsliding because that's based on a different analysis. Same thing for Russia. But Venezuela is a very important case, like Turkey. Oil wealth has been associated with more kind of top-heavy government, more state control. And so for that reason, the prospect of consolidating power in one person or one party has always been greater. But yeah, it is true that for decades, Venezuela was this stable two-party democracy and in Latin America, despite its oil wealth. And then that ended under Chavez and Maduro. The thing that was amazing about Venezuela is that it preserved its democracy throughout a period of democratic breakdown back in the 60s and early 70s before the third wave of democratization got started. I mean, I think it dates its democracy back to 1958 and really had what most people thought was a consolidated democracy in the midst of so many dictatorships in Latin America. But it's also a great example of how extreme wealth inequality could kind of disrupt economic growth within countries. How do you think that inequality, especially growing inequality, or even economic decline in the future could affect the model that Lipset kind of provided for us that high-income, wealthy democracies rarely collapse? Well, I think inequality, which has been with us for decades now, is definitely having an effect on partisanship, on the alignment of voters with the different parties. And I think inequality goes a long way toward explaining the rise of the right-wing populists like Orban or Maloney in Italy. However, I would say that in the current era, we tend to see rotation of power going on between kind of mainstream centrists and then these kind of extremist populists, especially on the right wing. And that's where I really see inequality playing out. Not so much in bringing about a shift to authoritarianism, but shifting the space of debate rightward. Like, for example, what we saw a month or so ago in Sweden with the Sweden Democrats becoming a partner in the ruling coalition and displacing a coalition that displaced the social democrats and you know what we've seen in Hungary, Serbia, other cases. And so that's what I see happening with inequality, that you have low-income voters who have experienced since the 1970s a sharp decline in their real income and a divergence between the levels of productivity and economic growth, as you're pointing out, and then their living conditions and their opportunities for social mobility. And so historically, and just logically, you would think, okay, well, they're going to vote for kind of the center, maybe center left, but instead they get kind of alienated and they see the center left and the center right, 
as the architects of their predicament of heavy debt that they're having to bear and having difficulty repaying because of the stagnation in their income. And so instead, they'll turn to figures like Trump or Bolsonaro or Orban, who can promise them first a just kind of anti-establishment jolt of dopamine to just go after the people in the system that they can blame for their woes. But then also, in many of these cases, you see a kind of welfare chauvinism where state benefits and services that can help out low-income citizens are targeted along some type of ascriptive identity lines so that while basically having still a pro-business policy platform, these right-wing populists can deliver some material benefits and material goods and services to their constituents in particular without offering some universal benefits to everyone in general. So perhaps the most forceful critique of the papers from any of the writers or really any of the listeners is probably going to be that just because democracies don't completely break down doesn't mean that there's not a real concern. Stephen Haggard and Robert Kaufman are some of the just most prolific scholars on this subject, and they didn't write one of the articles that critiqued your piece. But in the recent book on backsliding, they did write, barely surviving as a liberal democracy should not be considered an accomplishment, but rather a reminder of the risks that face both liberal and electoral democracies. What's your response to the idea that maybe you're setting the bar too low? Well, my response would be, I think this is great that people are having these discussions. I think the bar has been set low in political science with a procedural minimal definition. And I think we should be clear about what is happening, the way that bar has been set, that the 2020s are not a repeat of the interwar period, and that the basic stability of electoral democracies in the advanced economies remains very sound, remains very strong. What I think people are noticing. And again, I would come back to work by Paul Kamek, Thomas Ferguson, and others who have been skeptical of the procedural definition, is that minimal democracy may no longer be enough, or we should be aiming higher. And we should be thinking about these other issues, such as economic inequality, and then related to that, the question of political inequality or government non-responsiveness to ordinary citizens that's been highlighted in books by Larry Bartels. Marty Gillens and others. So that's kind of what I would say in response to, to Haggard and Coffin and others. Yes, let's talk about the failings of democracy in the United States and similar countries. But in order to do that, we really need to approach it from a question of government responsiveness and policy performance rather than through the paradigm of comparative regime studies where we're thinking in terms of democracy moving into dictatorship. I don't think the 71% of the Times Siena poll respondents who said that democracy is under threat were necessarily thinking about dictatorship. I think they're thinking about, hey, I vote and I vote, but my living conditions seem to get worse election cycle after election cycle doesn't change, doesn't seem to be much material improvement for me, no matter who's president. And so there's just a kind of uh, a frustration with government failing to perform. And, you know, that's definitely a conversation that political scientists should be having. It's one that I look forward to addressing in future work, because one of the things we say right at the end of a quiet consensus is 
if we set aside the language about authoritarianism or calling these right-wing populists you know, crypto autocrats, then we can really get into thinking about why the mainstream, why the centrist candidates are losing competitive elections. Like, why are their voters going elsewhere? And so I think that's the challenge, to really start explaining why centrists are struggling in democracies that are otherwise continuing. So coming up in a few days is going to be the American midterm elections. And a lot of the listeners are American, and I'm sure that they've got a lot of concerns about democracy in the United States. And like we've said on the podcast already, one of the themes of this election, particularly from Democrats, is that democracy is on the ballot. I'm not going to ask you how people should vote or whether people should vote one way or the other, but how concerned should Americans be about threats to democracy in these midterms? Like, should they actually be concerned about voting for particular candidates? Should they be concerned that if certain parties or certain candidates get elected, that democracy would be at greater threat? How should Americans be thinking about this as they go to vote? I think one important number to keep in mind here on this question of how concerned they should be is, you know, we said earlier, 71% of Americans are concerned about democracy. And apparently that number, roughly 71%, it holds for both parties. So if listeners are concerned about democracy, they can expect that there's someone from the other party who's also concerned about democracy from a different perspective. And, you know, in that regard, I would say, just be aware that there's a generalized concern. And it's not that one party kind of has a monopoly on this issue. So I think electorally, it's not great politics to necessarily emphasize this because Republicans can turn out thinking about saving democracy just as easily as Democrats can turn out. So when Biden gives a speech on democracy, that's not necessarily pulling independent voters over to vote for Democratic candidates. You know, with respect to the granular level, which is, I think, something that your question is getting at in terms of election irregularities or problems with vote counts or voter suppression, those kinds of issues, I think that's going to vary tremendously you know, by locality. And we really just have to kind of wait and see what happens. I've heard stories, yeah, about some areas where it looks like it's very politicized, but I'm cautious about generalizing from anecdotes and hypotheticals. But I would say the United States has had decades of elections. In many cases, there have been irregularities, there's been uncertainty, there's been accusations of manipulation. I think, generally speaking, this year's elections will be, you know, somewhere in the middle of the bell curve distribution of, of the quality of our elections. I'm not expecting a dramatic outlier. And uh, yeah, I mean, generally with respect to voting, you know, voting choices and all that, I think that's a very individual decision. And I would, again, just refer back to what the public opinion data are telling us, which is democracy is not really on the ballot in the sense that I think most people are approaching the ballot thinking about gas prices, grocery prices, how they're going to pay off their debt, whether they can afford to put their kids through college, that kind of thing. So bread and butter or kitchen table issues. So I think those are on the ballot much more prominently than democracy. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Jason. I think that this is a really important conversation as Americans are about to go to elections. I want to emphasize the two articles that we mentioned before. 
They're by yourself and co-written with Kenny Mao. It's Why Democracies Survive in a Quiet Consensus. They're uh, part of what the Journal of Democracy describes as a debate with a lot of very prominent scholars of democracy that weigh in on the conversation. So go check that out. Thank you once again, Jason. And uh, thanks for writing those pieces. And thanks for joining me today. Yeah. Thanks, Justin. I enjoyed it. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox Podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.